different passage in light of what Jesus says in John 15. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Pray with me, please. Beloved God and Father, adored and forever praised God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son. Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, thou who love us, lovest us, indwelling us, shaping us into an, an abode, a dwelling place for the Father and Son, we bow before thee, the great, almighty, triune God. Father, we thank you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, our Lord, we thank you for assuming our nature, becoming one of us, becoming to us the second Adam, the man from heaven who came down for our salvation. We worship you as both God and man. Thou art God of very God, now become also man, our beloved mediator in heaven. And with joy we await the day when we shall see thee face to face, falling down before thee, worshiping with great joy. Spirit of God, thank you for your presence, advocating for us, helping us, comforting us, and Yes, sanctifying us. As you beautified creation, now beautify thy new creation as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Shape our thoughts, our wills, our emotions into conformity with yours and with all those now made perfect in heaven. May it be said of this church that heaven was in us before we were in heaven. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and join me standing, turning to John chapter 15, <clears throat> we will read the first 14 verses. Well, perhaps just the 11 verses. John chapter 15. The inspired, gifted to his people, inerrant, without error, word of God. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, ye can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. And by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Amen. The word of God. You may be seated. As we approach this passage of scripture, glorious, beautiful passage, observe that Jesus moves seamlessly from his thought content of chapter 14 to chapter 15 with the imagery, the allegory of the vine. In chapter 14, Jesus especially teaches on the, uh, as we have called it, the mutual indwelling of himself with the Father. He says in verse 11 of 14, I am in the Father, my Father, and the Father in me. So from all eternity past, this, this was the existence of the Godhead. The three divine persons who are each fully God and are one God. The Father has indwelt the Son. The Son has indwelt the Father through God the Holy Spirit. And as he was, so he is and shall be forever. Amen. But he then expands this in 1420, saying, You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. <laughs> Wonder of wonders, joy of joys, to, to be a child of God is to be brought into this mutual indwelling because we are in Christ, we are in the heavenlies. Uh, frankly, my circuit board my, begins to fry as I try to comprehend these things. How can I understand this? So Jesus, as he moves into 15, introduces the allegory of a vine and branches to help his disciples then and his children today to get some understanding. And we can apprehend his thoughts, even if we cannot fully comprehend them. Vines and vineyards figured prominently for the people of first century Palestine. In fact, grapevines are mentioned more than any other plant in the Bible. A fruitful vine was used as a, as a symbol of obedient Israel, while wild grapes or an empty vine spoke of Israel's disobedience. Uh, listen to Isaiah 5. 
Isaiah 5, first seven verses. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So, so here in chapter 15, Jesus uses this allegory of a grapevine to speak to the importance and means of fruitfulness as seen in a vineyard. And fruitfulness is the result not of human achievement, but of the abiding in Christ. Now think with me. This passage, John 14, morphing into 15 with the allegory of the vine, this passage is the gospel's counterpart of Paul's teaching everywhere that the church is the body of Christ in which believers are those who are in Christ or in the beloved. Now, nearly all of us would acknowledge that we all possess, what we possess all comes from God. And yet sometimes I think we come to think of it as ours by right, ours by our nature. But Christ insists that the vital sap, that is all of life and strength, comes from him alone. All that is good in me and that comes out of me comes from Christ alone. Calvin says, when he calls himself the true vine, the meaning is, I am truly the vine. And therefore men toil to no purpose seeking strength anywhere else. For from none will useful fruit proceed, but from the branches which shall be produced by me. For apart from me, can you say it? Ye can do nothing. Pastoral reflection. This is the posture of the publican, not the Pharisee. This is the posture of the publican. God is pleased with the one who is sorry for their sin, who wants to change, and is asking for forgiveness. So, boy or girl, if you have sinned, and what boy or girl hasn't? What man or woman hasn't? If you've done something bad, ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to help you to become like him. And when you ask, meaning what you say, he promises to forgive you. Isn't that beautiful for every boy and girl? 
But observe the role of the vine dresser. Verses 1 and 2. The role of the vine dresser, the one who tends the vineyard, King James said, the husbandman. Jesus asserts he is the true vine. His father is the vine dresser. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. What had just happened? Jesus had just dismissed Judas, removed Judas from his disciples. Illustration first, teaching later. Bottom line. Fruitfulness in a vineyard is imperative because it's the whole point of the vineyard. It is what a vineyard is for. It's what a church is for. Pruning is resorted to in order to ensure that this takes place. For left to itself, a vine will produce a great deal of unproductive growth. Been there, done that. Thus, for true fruitfulness, extensive pruning is essential. The fruit of Christian service is never the result of allowing the natural energies and inclinations to run riot. He prunes us to beautify his church. Calvin writes, I quote, Believers need incessant culture, cultivation, that they may be prevented from degenerating, and that they produce nothing good unless God continually apply his hand. For it will not be enough to have been once made partakers of adoption if God do not continue the work of his grace in us. <laughs> you catch that? What's Calvin calling the work of his grace? The pruning, his hand on us, the work of his grace. How is that grace? It's fitting us for heaven, which we want to be fitted for heaven. Verses 4 through 6, Christ says in verse 4, Abide in me. And the Greek indicates a one-time action, a decision to yield to Christ. But then he repeats it, saying, unless it abides in the vine. And here the Greek indicates a repeated or continuous action. So, so Jesus is saying, you must choose, you must decide to yield to me, saying virtually, my Lord and my God. But having done so, you must continuously, repeatedly abide in him. How? How? Look at verses 3 and 7. 3 and 7. 3, he says, Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. To abide in Christ means, as Spurgeon said of Bunyan, if you pricked him, his blood would flow biblene. To abide in Christ means I'm a man of the book. I'm a woman of the book. I'm a boy who opens my Bible. I'm a girl who opens my Bible. 
You must be opening your Bible daily, going into and out of pasture, listening, ruminating, reading, praying, Lord, please speak to my heart. That, that word ruminating. As the muckers, every time you look at one of your dairy cows and they're out eating, what do they do? I was going to ask your mom to demonstrate what it looks like to chew the cud. <laughs> but you're ruminating, you're thinking about it, so you're, you're taking scripture in and you're thinking about it. Bring it back up and chew on it yet again. Lord, am I walking in holiness today? Are my eyes pure? Am I free from anxiety because of your embrace of love, ruminating, chewing the cud? Calvin says here, he points out the means of pruning, namely doctrine. And there can be no doubt that he speaks of outward preaching for he expressly mentions the word which they had heard from his mouth. Not, this is Calvin, not that the word proceeding from the mouth of a man has so great efficacy, effectiveness, but so far as Christ works in the heart by the spirit and the word itself is the instrument of cleansing. You need to be in a personal Bible reading time with prayer daily. The church website has multiple Bible reading plans. You need to be sitting underneath plain style expository preaching, the purpose of which is to ask, what saith the Lord? What does it mean? What doctrine is here? And how does it apply to me, to us? Verse 7, ask whatever you wish, a blank check. If so, it is in contradiction of the entire context. Christ does not mean we can ask whatever strikes our fancy, our appetites. Calvin, again, is very helpful. It says he limits the wishes of his people to the rule of praying in the right manner, and the rule subjects itself to the good pleasure of God. Christ means that his people will not desire riches or honor or power or anything of this world's praise, but the vital sap of the Holy Spirit which enables them to bear fruit. Wow. Glorifies God. Verse 9. Dear child of God, as surely as the Father loves the Son, just as surely does the Son love you. Jesus loves you. We ought, therefore, to cast our eyes on Christ, in whom will be found the testimony and pledge of the love of God. For the love of God was fully poured out on him, that from him it might flow to us. John 3.16, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now turn to chapter 16 and look at 26 and 7 again. In that day you will ask in my name, and I don't say that I will request the Father on your behalf, 
For the Father himself phileos you, affectionately loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. The Father affectionately loves us. How tender, how precious are these words of Christ. So, boys and girls, men and women, the, the creator of heaven and earth affectionately loves you as his child because of your love for Jesus. This should melt our hearts. Verse 10. Now, if we ask the question, how do we abide in Christ? How, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean to abide in his love? Verse 10 makes it very simple. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience to the commandments of God. Conforming our lives, our attitudes, our desires, our appetites to the word of God is what it means to abide in him, to abide in his love. Pastoral reflection. How will I be able to keep his commandments if I'm not a Bible-reading man? I don't know. How will I be able to keep his commandments if I'm not a Bible-reading woman? Boy or girl, you, you've got to have your Bible open. You've got to be reading, listening to him, if you would abide in him. If I'm not going in and out of pasture in the Bible, how will I hear his voice highlight a particular verse to me to chew the cud on, to think about, and to begin obeying. If I'm not reading my Bible, you will hear his voice potentially only under biblical preaching, but that's not enough. I must be opening my Bible daily, listening, seeking my master's voice, that I might embrace it and begin keeping whatever I sense I need to keep. And again, there are multiple Bible reading plans on the church website. Verse 11 is the bullseye for this section. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's consider doctrine very quickly. First, observe the seventh and final I am, I am of Christ, in which he uses the style of deity asserting that he is God in the flesh in this I am, I am the true vine. Second, observe the crystal clear father-son distinction that permeates this chapter, laying the groundwork for the doctrine of the Trinity. Third, observe the role of obedience, of sanctification. It's just rife throughout this section. 
It's all about conforming my behaviors, thoughts, words, deeds to what God has said. Observe that here we have another of John's images to help us understand what it means to believe or faith into Christ. Well, it's like a vine and a branch. If that branch ain't connected to the vine, how's the branch going to do anything but to be connected? You'll start reading my word and keeping my commandments and showing that you love me. So to glorify the Father is to bear much fruit, which in this passage results in the Father pruning the child of God that he might bear more fruit. Let's consider a beautiful application. Observe the trajectory of this as it lands for the time being in verse 11 on the subject of joy. Joy. Jesus is concerned about your joy because the Father is concerned about your joy and the Spirit of God purposes to beautify the children of God with joy inexpressible. Of verse 11, Calvin says, the, the joy which he mentions springs from the peace with God which is possessed by all who have been justified by free grace. As often then as God's fatherly love toward us is preached, let us know that there is given to us ground for true joy, that with peaceable consciences we may be certain of our salvation. Jesus describes this joy as never failing or passing away. And it's not that the child of God won't have periods of sadness, but that the ground for joy will be far greater so that no dread, no anxiety, no grief will swallow them up entire. 16.22 observed the same focus. He says, he, he, he acknowledges their sorrow. He says, so you, you also have sorrow now, but I'm going to see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one takes your joy from you. Verse 24, Until now you've asked nothing in my name, but ask and you'll receive, that your joy may be full. 17.13, now we're in the high priestly prayer. Listen to this focus on joy again. 17.13, While I was with them, Father, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The intent of the Father and the Son is that the joy that exists in the heart of Jesus will be found in me as an individual child of God and us collectively as a church. Christ prays for their minds that they be calm for their salvation was in no danger. Jesus is 
concerned about our emotional state of mind. You'll recall, he said in chapter 14, stop letting your hearts be troubled. I, I know you guys are scared, you're confused. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. He has said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not like the world. So let not your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Psalm 16, 11. Thou makest known to me the path of life, for in thy presence there is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. At creation the angels shouted for joy. At his birth the angels brought good news of great joy for all people. Salvation is attendant with joy, for, for David pleads, does he not restore unto me the joy of your salvation? Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who need no repentance. Romans 14, 17 the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy, which is second named in the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, so systemic to the New Testament is this concept of joy that the vocabulary of joy is used 362 times in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, the Father is concerned about your joy. He's concerned that this church look like heaven on earth with joy. The joy of Jesus is the joy that arises from the sense of a finished work. It is a creative joy, like the joy of an artist. It produces a sense of unexhausted power for fresh creation. And this joy in the heart of Jesus is the, the joy of victory and the sense of having bringing, brought his church into being. Joy thus is attendant with being adopted as a son or daughter. Beloved, our God is concerned for our well-being and joy. Yes, we may go through trials. Yes. We may lose happiness, yes, but when we put our trust in him, he puts his joy, which transcends happiness, into our hearts. The Father's hand is clearly, blessedly, upon Providence Presbyterian Church, guiding us. The Father desires that our hearts overflow with the joy of Christ and, and so bring him glory and praise as we enjoy the wondrous blessings he's given and is yet to give us as a church and through us as a church. Personally, I am filled with joy anticipating the richness of the Father's blessing on us and through us as to his glory we seek his choice of a senior pastor and a more permanent building to call home.
Let it be said of this church, heaven was in us before we were in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this emphasis upon joy. Thank you that it transcends our heartache, our sorrow, our loss. Thank you that the ultimate picture in heaven is joy, rapturous joy. We long for that, Lord. Some of our hearts are heavy. Please touch us. Some of us haven't been reading our Bibles. Please stir us to simply open it up, begin reading a psalm. Father, bless this body. Let your grace, mercy, and joy dwell richly in us. For Christ's sake, amen.